Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Like some food for thought? Tune in to Radical Philosophy with discussions on freedom, happiness, knowledge, evil and rational argument. With words from Midgley, Caputi, Adams, Stewart, Wolf, and Hagen Gruber. Let's get radical about philosophy. Thanks so much for tuning in to Radical Philosophy. I'm your host, Beth Matthews. Today on the program, I'm going to be speaking with Professor Babette Babbage about the philosophy of music. Welcome to the program. Well, thank you. Thank you for this invitation. Now, could you give us a little bit of background information about yourself? Sure. I came late to philosophy. I began as a student of biology at State University of New York at Stony Brook, which is great for biology. But I learned very quickly that to study biology, you had to kill. You have to dissect animals and comparative vertebrate anatomy, according to cell culture. You've got to kill. So I switched, I switched to philosophy because that doesn't involve killing anything. So that's very useful. And Stony Brook is actually unique among most philosophy departments because it's a continental department. It always was. So, and it was set up by a physicist, Patrick Heelan, who hired a range of fascinating people I really lucked out, David Allison, who was a specialist in Nietzsche, and Don Eide, who was really, 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 he's very important these days. He became, in the years since I knew him, really important uh, for philosophy of technology. So I had all of that. And then, then I learned, I was undergraduate, that Gadamer, Hans Georg Gadamer, was teaching at Boston College. So I said, I'll go there. That was kind of silly. I should have gone to Columbia, but I went there and learned uh, from him, and I took a lot of theology. I did strange things. You really make your own program by the courses you choose to follow and by the things you choose to do. And then, of course, I thought, I can't stay here. I have to go to Germany. So I did, and I was the first person to win a Fulbright at Boston College. And that's funny because they don't give awards to schools unless other people have already won them. So if you win one, other people profit after you because then they say, oh, that's on the map and we'll, they must be a good place. We'll give a second and a third. And in fact, many people now have won those. I went to Germany. I learned German. I taught there many times. And that also continues one's education. Uh, to Tübingen, which is a little town, beautiful town on the Neckar. Uh, Hegel and so on, just absolutely glorious. I met some of my first Australians when I was in Göttingen learning uh, German, so that was that was very important for me. And then and then I went uh, to write my dissertation, my doctorate in Belgium. I wrote on Nietzsche uh, with with Jacques Tamignot, who died unfortunately this past summer, but he was just wonderful for that, precisely because I think mostly because he did absolutely nothing, which I really think is is the achievement of philosophy, managing to do a great deal while doing nothing. To this day, I still work on Nietzsche. So I edit a journal, New Nietzsche Studies, and Nietzsche, of course, 
put music, mentioned music, it's right there in his first book. We birthed a tragedy out of the spirit of music, and I, of course, approached it a little bit through philosophy of science, a little bit through epistemology, but that is, for Nietzsche, the key to, to music, a little bit of epistemology is the key for him to music, because we have no tape recordings from ancient Greece. So you've got to use a lot of theory in order to be able to think about antiquity. Yeah, that's right. Uh, what was it that inspired you to study the philosophy of music? I played the cello when I was younger. I didn't play a lot, but enough to be completely struck by it. I'm also keen on contrabass. It's, I guess, the kind of lower register really intrigues me. And I also wanted, at the same time, to figure out the differences between pop music and jazz and so-called classical music, mostly with cello, you know, you're not you're not playing marching band music. You're not you're not usually unless it's uh, unless it's the Moody Blues. You're not really playing in a lot of pop music. That's that's always very recherche. So if you approach from the cello, you're sort of coming at it from classical music, and that's where I came. So at the same time, the only thing that you hear. The only popular thing that you hear is pop music, pop music, some jazz maybe, and so on. And I wanted to understand that. The interesting thing, of course, in philosophy is that Plato, who really was Pythagorean in his orientation and formation, he didn't doesn't say the things that philosophy of music, if you study philosophy of music, will say. They have, you know, I like this better, or this is this comes from this perspective, and these things turn out from Plato's point of view to be opinion. And I wanted more than opinion. I wanted, as I say, there's a more of an epistemological aspect. What? How does one understand that? And Nietzsche doesn't make it easier. He makes it harder because Nietzsche's first book is ill-understood. Most people think he's simply obsessed with Wagner. That's one of the more common things that one hears. But if you read the book, he rarely mentions Wagner. He mostly talks about Beethoven, so he's not much of a fanboy, as it were, for Wagner. So there's a funny thing about that. And he also opposes Aristotle. So Nietzsche is a bit of a wild card if you throw him in and you take him seriously, which I did. And then the question is, how do you understand some of that? So the philosophy of music for me would be both to understand music in antiquity. Nietzsche thinks it explains tragedy and to understand music as we listen to it today, iTunes or uh, on the radio or on YouTube or any experience or exposure to music, we're still looking at something that we need to understand in a different way. And I think maybe there's more music in a certain sense that we hear today than ever before because we're very tuned in, we're very connected, and therefore there's, there's, a, there's a need, a greater need, understand music, not just theoretically, but also experientially, performatively, practically. So which book was it that made you who you are? Well, the first, the very first philosophy book I ever read was Plato's Republic, because there it was on my father's bookshelf. And so you, you look around, you look around at home. But that doesn't count, I think, I think, and it's not really fair to say that, because that's not what made me who I am. What made me who I am was really reading Kant's Critique of Pure Reason, which I read, and I'm not exaggerating, throughout the day and throughout the night without stopping. 
And I've done that, of course, many times ever since. I find it absolutely fascinating. I still teach it. I still read it. And then, and then of course, I could say Kirk and Raven, their book, Pre-Socratic Philosophers, now it's Kirk Raven and Schofield. That's not really a book. And then, of course, because there's always more than one book, once you start, you read more. I read Heidegger, Being in Time, and I read everything Nietzsche after I got over not liking Nietzsche because Nietzsche says such ridiculous things, and so you have to, have to learn to read Nietzsche. It takes a while. And I learned to read Nietzsche because of Kant. That's Kantian. That's very different from the way most people read Nietzsche, which, means, which is why they pay so much attention to what he says about logic and what he says about truth and science. So I should also say I read a lot. I mean, I read probably more than most people read because I, I, I think, how can you be a scholar without reading? But that, that those, those would be the three books, Kant, Critique of Reason, Being in Time, and then in addition to a lot of ancient philosophy where we just have fragments and no real books, Nietzsche, who was a classicist after all. Could you tell us about your publication, Words in Blood Like Flowers? Oh, yes. Words in Blood Like Flowers. That's indebted in fairly equal parts to Heidegger and Hodelin and Nietzsche, especially Nietzsche's reading of poetry, the ancient troubadour tradition, and Hodelin and his Greeks. The title is completely stolen. I stole every word. One bit from Nietzsche who wrote that we should only trust things written in blood. That's with heart and passion, but also pain involving sacrifice and generosity. The other part, because I said the whole title is stolen, is stolen from Hodelin, who speaks of the poetic moment as an event in which words like flowers can come into being to be born, emerge into being. Werther wie Blumen is the German, very strange and very beautiful. I teach very classical types of, of, of philosophy, as one can guess, and I, I read original sources. And that means I, I never really teach my own books. But recently, I was teaching a course on philosophy and poetry. And I discovered that it wasn't as terrible a book. One can think after you write a book, well, that wasn't very good. But this book has a great deal because it has. It engages with poetry, with a lot of poetry. And so it, I would really compare it a little to Anne Carson's wonderful book, uh, Eros the Bittersweet, because, as it turns out, she's, although she's writing about Sappho, she's really writing about Archilochus. And the only philosopher who writes about Archilochus is Nietzsche. He actually has two sections in the birth of the tragedy on Archilochus and pointing out that the ancients compared Archilochus to Homer. So it's really kind of kind of very interesting. And there's also some chapters on Heidegger and architecture and the work of art, the origin of the work of art. So those things are there in terms of, which I look at in terms of place a bit. Would you be able to tell us about Martin Heidegger, complex relation to Friedrich Nietzsche's philosophy? Oh, absolutely. But it's a difficult question that you're asking because on the one hand, Heidegger really seemed to have hated Nietzsche. He just really was nasty to him. But on the other hand, and this I think is also the very the, the, the very crucial question, if, if Heidegger says that Nietzsche didn't ask the being question, which is what he says, 
uh, he also says that Nietzsche was a, a metaphysician, which Nietzsche insisted that he was not. So Heidegger didn't seem to like Nietzsche, didn't think that Nietzsche asked the being question, which, of course, nobody adds or would accept for Heidegger. And he also thought that he was the last metaphysician, like the last metaphysician of the West, which is a very bad thing, like being the last cowboy. But at the same time, and this is what makes it complicated, that relationship is complex, because all Heidegger really does is talk about Nietzsche. So he talks about Nietzsche more than Aristotle, more than Kant. He just talks about Nietzsche. So that's a very interesting kind of contradiction. If he doesn't like him so much, why does he talk about him so much? And then there's a mystery, a kind of mystery moment, because at the end of his life, he kind of wanders around and just says, Nietzsche destroyed me. Nietzsche hat mich kaputt gemacht in German. Nietzsche ruined me, which is weird. Now, no one really knows quite what that means. It's like a rosebud moment in Susan Cain, and people think it means whatever they think it reminds them of, like the rosebud on on the sled. It's very significant. But for me, whatever you want to think about that, what's really important is that Heidegger does one thing which almost no one else does, he asks us to read Nietzsche seriously. And that means that most people don't do that. Most people think, you know, God said, who cares, it's Nietzsche, it's easy, how hard could it be? Heidegger slows us down and says, you got to read this the way you would read a theorist of logic. And that's very appealing to me, because I think the most interesting thing about Nietzsche is that he tells us, we philosophers, that there is no truth. And that's a really, really interesting thing to say from a logical point of view. What do you mean when you say there is no truth? Or, or it, because, of course, one of the same things Plato says when he says, you know, that it's all opinion, that it's just what you see, and that what is really real are the ideas that you don't see. That's very, very challenging. So for me, that's what Heidegger can help one do. He can help us to read each other a little more slowly, slow down a bit, take it a little more seriously. And he has his own issues, but he's also a, a great warning, because if if Heidegger takes Nietzsche so seriously and reads him so much while complaining about him bitterly, and then at the end of his life says, oh, this guy ruined me, then maybe Nietzsche is dangerous. And I think that that is probably the most important thing to remember. You may not know what you're dealing with when you deal with Nietzsche. Kind of a little bit dynamite. That's what he called himself, dynamite. (laughs) You're listening to Radical Philosophy on Radio 3CR, 8.55 on your AM dial, and I'm speaking with Professor Babette Babbage about the philosophy of music. Now, you've also written The Hallelujah Effect. That's true. Music, performance, practice, and technology. That's the subtitle. But it's really three books in one, and I think it would have been better if I had broken them up. Sometimes I think that, because the first part, and this is a really complicated question because of that, is the difference in desire between male and female desire. That's also pop music, when you sing musical songs, pop songs. Is it a woman singing? Is it a man singing? What is the difference? And the Hallelujah in question is obviously Leonard Cohen. Cohen's Hallelujah. And as everybody knows, Leonard Cohen 
I think there's a recent film on, on Leonard Cohen and, and, and Marianne in, in, in Greece, which is really making that even more evident. He was a ladies' man. And to be a ladies' man is a funny word because it means you cheat on all of the women in your life. That's, that's what it is to be a ladies' man. It means you're not really true to them. Very, very funny thing. And the Hallelujah itself is a secret song. It's about David. And therefore, to a great extent, it's about David's desire, about him, about his relationship to the divine, to God. It's, it's really about David. And so one of the things the Hallelujah effect does is it looks at that question, and that's why I talk about Katie Lang, because only Katie Lang can sing that song from the point of view of the I, I heard there was a secret song. And, and to sing that song, you have to take the point of view of the I. You have to be able to channel Leonard Cohen, as it were. And Katie Lang can do that. She's an incredible singer. That's very, very clear. She could sing that song with passion. And that's really what was interesting to me. And while I was writing the book, I was corresponding with the professor of music because I thought, let me talk to an expert. And he kept making fun of the song. He kept telling me that the Hallelujah song, Cohen's Hallelujah, was a calculated, programmatic, planned hit, that it couldn't have been anything but a hit. kept on saying, it's like summertime. And I'm like, it is not like summertime. It's nothing like summertime. But he was right back. He wrote, he was in his 90s, and he was right back in the email. He said, yes, it's calculated. It's going to work. It works. It plays on the audience. It plays on their response. It brings down the house every time. And if you hear Katie Lang, and I went and heard her singing, she brings down the house every time. And Hallelujah does that. So that's the reason I wrote that. And But I was really interested in male and female desire, the different things. And, of course, one of the things I realized is that the trouble with the difference between male and female desire is that women tend, that's not always true, but they tend to seek be desired rather than to desire themselves. That doesn't mean that I'm saying that women don't desire. They do. They do. Of course they do. The trouble is that if they desire males, if you could turn the song, the Hallelujah song around, and so you saw him bathing, a guy bathing on the roof, you wouldn't write a song like that. It's a very interesting question. And so for me, for all the marvelous insights, this is an Australian author who teaches at Cornell that can be found in a wonderful book by Kate Mann, which is Down Girl, The Logic of Misogyny. What's lacking, and I think that you need it to be able to talk about incels and their problems, is a discussion of male desire and female desire, because that's, I think, the most subversive thing, which would be female desire of the male on a purely erotic, purely physical, purely aesthetic level. But that would be different conversation than the one we're having. Very different. Yeah, I hadn't, hadn't really thought about that. So I suppose sexuality comes into it, doesn't it? <laughs> wow. Yes, it does. Very big. That's what I also write about with some actually pictures in that book for that reason. Could you tell us about the musical covers and the culture industry? That's, for me, very much the old Frankfurt School, pre-Habermas, pre-Harnett and company, focused on the mechanism of what they called, their word, the culture industry. 
And this includes the music industry, film industry, television, video, HBO, YouTube, Instagram, even what we're doing now, this this program, this radio program itself, because they use in their analysis today's culture industry is something that's been done for nearly 75 years, a way of selling you, the listener, your own desire. Back to you. Very interesting. So I, I try to look at it as your brain on the Internet. When you wake up and check Twitter or your email or your Facebook to see what's on, to see if anybody sought to contact you. And I think that that's related to, but it's not, uh, but it certainly overlaps with texting if you're in a relationship, which can involve a lot of texting or children uh, also. But there's a different culture, the digital culture, and I think the digital culture has changed the culture industry. Benjamin talked, spoke about works of art and stuff, but he didn't live long enough to really see what's going on. You, you have to go beyond Benjamin to Adorno. You have to go to his cousin, Gunther Anders, who no one ever talks about, but you have to go to him. And Gunther Anders, to me, is fantastic because he has put his finger on what's really important about digital culture, and that is that we do it to ourselves, and we do it for free. It's a very, very interesting thing. He called us home workers. He was very old-fashioned, you know, the German working and writing in Vienna. And he said, well, you're basically home workers. You work at home, and, and but people don't pay you, but you work constantly. It's a very interesting uh, analysis. And at the same time, and I, I have a position at Fordham University, but I also have a pretend position, they don't pay me, but at, at the University of Winchester in, in England. And what interests me is that in England, if you're not on social media as an academic, that's a serious problem because then you're failing your job, which is to have impact. You've got, as a philosopher, to have impact. It's actually part of your contract in England. In the U.S., we do it or we don't, but I write about it because it fascinates me from a phenomenological point of view. And what's interesting now is that and this has really changed the music industry, and it's changed iTunes, and it's changed software. Now there's this move to have you not buy your software, not buy your songs, but rent them. So you become a subscriber. And when you become a subscriber to Microsoft, it's like subscribing to someone's YouTube channel. You want to know what they're going to be doing. But in this case, they want you, when you subscribe to Microsoft, you're obviously a paying customer, and so you don't own your copy of Word, but you subscribe, which means every year you pay another fee. And they like that, and that's, of course, the new model. So the new model is this move to subscription, which turns everybody, even a customer, into a consumer in the sense that the consumer is constantly consuming every day. <laughs> every day a new subscription to pay, which is a very interesting thing. And for me, that's really the, the kind of question which I'm now trying to study, programmability, because we, as we participate in all of this, we also program ourselves. Yeah, that's, that's very interesting, because I, my new favourite song at the moment is Dance Monkey. And I said to my daughter, can you put that on my phone as a ringtone? And she said, oh, Mum. You know, you're really showing your age. She said, nowadays, anybody with a ringtone, they know that um, they're a baby boomer. So <laughs> so it's really hard to keep up with sometimes. 
vibes, isn't it? And, and I, I thought that I was being quite cool, you know, having my favourite song with Tones and I, Dance Monkey. But uh, then she said, no, no, don't put it on your phone. That's outdated. So, <laughs> so I suppose it's a good thing I have a child who <laughs> keeps me up to date with these things. Right. You're right. You're lucky. You're very lucky. Yeah. So, and, and as you were saying about academics not not being online when I had to contact well I wanted to contact Mary Midgley for an interview and it's the same with a lot of retired academics it's actually quite difficult to get an email address for them but what I did with Mary Midgley I wrote to her um, publicist and sent the message and asked them to forward it to her and, and they they did that within a couple of hours and she responded straight away and so sometimes you have to be creative to find people online, don't you? You do, you, and you need to know what you're doing. And that was a very smart way to go about it. I mean, even Umberto Eco, when he was still alive, was on Twitter because of the publicist. It's the publicist that makes people go online so it's, or have accessibility. It's a very interesting circle. Is there anything else you'd like to add that we haven't already covered? Just one thing, and to me, there's, there's a question. I mean, I also write on the on the cover, so to talk about covering something we haven't covered is kind of cool. Uh, what what I'm interested in now, and I don't know that I'll be able to, to, to develop it because it's still a happening project, but it has been for a couple of years, is something called ASMR, which is Autonomous Sensory Meridian Response. And the reason is that not everybody has this as a, as a sensible feeling, but some people do, and it's a gigantic just gigantic YouTube phenomenon. It's recently gone, I was talking before about programming, it's gone into mainstream because, of course, it can elicit things under consciousness, under a certain level, and, of course, an honor level that is a kind of also conscious. So to me, to me, there's a commercial interaction, but also a phenomenal interaction, something that is experienced and so on. And to me, that's, that's, that, that, that could be... I think it's worth doing if I manage. And I'm not sure that I will. And then I should also say that it's related to me to being able to see someone like Gadamer, who died in 2002. I met him when he was 80 years old, and he managed to live to be 102. And if I see YouTube videos of him talking, I'm really quite happy. It's something that I'm very delighted to watch and to listen to, even if it's in German, and it always, nearly always is when it's not in Italian. He was so very keen on speaking Italian. But other than that, those are areas that, for me, have a certain amount of, of interest because they're happening right now, and it's worth looking at them. Yeah, no, that's certainly a good point. Well, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> thanks very much for coming onto the program today. Thank you for having me, and thank you for sharing uh, some of the other 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 programs you've done. As I as I, I Mary Mitchley, I think is worth kind of flagging and sending out to everyone. Thank you again for all of that. Oh, thank you. And I've been speaking with Professor Babette Babbage, and uh, hope hope you've enjoyed the program. And do stay tuned for the wonderful Swing and Sway.